0: Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet.
1: Okay, breaking, breaking news here. Sheila is no longer in the basement. <laughs> December 13th, I snuck 2022. Out. Shilla is out of the basement. <laughs> <laughs> is this permanent? Let's hope so. Let's hope so.
2: This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. This week, Charles Kahn, Chairman of the Board of Directors at Patagonia, joins us to share his story of how the company made the landmark decision to make Earth its only shareholder. This was news not just in the apparel industry, but everywhere. Patagonia has been private its entire existence, and its 84-year-old founder, Yvonne Chouinard, looked to step away. He opted for something entirely unique give the shares of the company to a 501c4 and a perpetual purpose trust designed to put the profits to work exclusively for the planet. Patagonia Inc. remains the same, but where the profits flow and how they're directed is now in the hands of the Patagonia Purpose Trust and the Whole Fast Collective. The market is still digesting this move. Will it signal a new path for purpose-driven companies? Will it alter the course of late-stage capitalism? Big questions, and we are delighted to have Charles here to help answer them. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
1: Rachel Kivy of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great, Christina. I've got my Patagonia vest on today.
2: Excellent. Dressing for the guest. Mm -hmm. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, joins us from the basement. I have ascended (laughs) to my bedroom. I've been promoted. Congratulations!
4: <laughs> I've been promoted. It looks in the- <laughs> like there's actually window light. Yes, it's so nice. We have snow on the ground here, um, so
2: I should be wearing my Patagonia vest. I want you guys to know it is 40 degrees in Los Angeles right now. Wow. My cat went out the door this morning, <laughs> turned right around, came, came right, right back, back in. in. <laughs> 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 okay, uh, it's time to bring on our guest, Charles Kahn.
0: Welcome, Charles. Happy to be here. Thanks, Christina.
2: Charles, we're so excited
4: for you to be here, and we're really excited. You know, we know you're board chair of Patagonia. You've served on the board for 15 years, um, and we're really excited to get into um, a conversation around that. Um, and actually, you and I met at. Aspen Institute Henry Crown Fellow Program, where you spoke a little bit about Patagonia, and you were gracious enough to accept my hounding of you to, to come on to and, and share the story in this forum. You're co founder of Monograph Capital, a life science venture fund based in London. Um, and you started your career as a consultant at BCG and McKinsey. Um, you were the founding CEO of CitySearch, which then merged with Ticketmaster. Um, and then um, your career choices took such an interesting turn. You became senior advisor to the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation their environmental program, you oversaw their, preservation of wild salmon ecosystems. Um, you're the European Council member of the Nature Conservancy, and you've now served on boards of many conservation organizations And I'm just so curious to hear about. You started with a very almost traditional business background and then you, and, and you're, you've made very interesting career choices, clearly in the support of environmentalism. And, and, and we'd love to hear more about how and why did that happen?
0: Yeah, well, it's a long story because I'm—I've become very old uh, accidentally. But in some ways, I guess I've been finding my way back home. Right? I was that kid who loved looking at pond water under a microscope, and who always thought biology was great. And then somehow, the way the education system works, I ended up, you know, studying economics and mathematics, and ended up doing something that probably wasn't really what my, you know, what my heart was to do after being a consultant and, and being a successful entrepreneur, I was able to stop and think, what do I really care about? And I was, I think, 39 years old. And I'd just done this amazing program at the Aspen Institute. And I, I really realized, wow, I need to get back to what I really care about, which is you know biology and conservation. And I started having conversations with people. And I was you know lucky enough to meet actually two different people on different rivers. One was Gordon Moore, who's the one of the founders of Intel and and whose foundation I, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, I worked with for more than a decade. And Yvonne Chouinard, who I met on a different river in British Columbia. And I'd say meeting both of those people, you know, changed my life and helped me direct my life to some bigger purpose than being a really clever consultant or entrepreneur.
2: I think the most surprising thing I've seen a CEO say Um, I read in a Fortune piece that you wrote um, just this September, two months ago. And I wanted to ask you about it because this is literally coming from a longtime Wall Street Journal reporter who got very used to the talking lines of every CEO in the world over many years. And then you come along and you say you wrote... That shareholder capitalism has benefited in you and many others, but, quote, "...let's be honest, it made its gains at an enormous cost, including increasing inequality and wide-scale, uncompensated environmental damage. We have subsidized buoyant shareholder returns by fraying the fabric of our societies and using up the planet we live on. We all know this is happening. The world is literally
1: on fire." I have to say, that's the same quote I pulled out from that piece, too. Well, that's fighting words.
2: Is this something you've been feeling for decades? Is this something that you recently came to realize? And I'm also really curious about your colleagues out there in the corporate world, if you heard anything from them
0: about it. I guess I've been feeling this way for a long time everybody I went on my own journey and you know I went to a big evil business school where I was taught about shareholder capitalism I think Sheila knows exactly what I'm talking about um, we read Milton Friedman and we mm-hmm. you know read that famous essay that he wrote which is actually you know very well written and well reasoned and wrong and I think you tell yourself little lies when you're building a career uh, about why you can sort of forget about that big picture for now and I'm sorry that it that it took me as long as it did to speak up. And I think it was frankly watching the kind of courage that you see in an Ivan Chenard that gave me the courage to call it out, which is we all did, you know, build wealth based on this system. And this system, it's undeniable that in, and it's actually in the period of less than a century, we have built this remarkable system that's given us many good things, you know, incredible health care and You know, there's a a lot of creativity and innovation in capitalism, but it's terrible at distribution, and it's terrible at not taking things that don't belong to it, right? And, you know, we know what that means. That's the communities that aren't powerful enough to say no, and all the other creatures on the planet that don't have a voice to say, hey, that's not okay. You think about it, like, you know, the, the planet had 5 billion years of stored solar energy. Some of that's you know, in the form of hydrocarbons when we started exploiting that about 150 years ago at the most. And we've used most of it, which is kind of remarkable. Just just in really in a couple of lifetimes, not even a couple of lifetimes, sort of four or five generations. So, you know, my father knew his great-grandfather who was born in 1860. So just in that span of four or five generations... We've completely destroyed the planet by this sort of incredibly creative, but also greedy and avaricious system. And, you know, I think we're we're no longer at the point where you can push that pile under the rug. If you have kids or, or care about the future, you have to be honest about it. And we have to do something different and pretty quickly.
2: Do you share that message with your corporate colleagues? You've got an avid audience among environmentalists, but what about
0: Wall Street? Absolutely. There are lots of people who talk their talking points, and you know exactly the kind of people who do that in the Wall Street Journal, who are members of the CEO's roundtable or the World Economic Forum, and they say, yes, this is really important stuff and we need to work on it. And they've introduced this concept of stakeholder capitalism, and they do care about the environment and the communities that they serve and the staff that work with them. But it's mostly a fig leaf, and the system hasn't really changed. Even under the law, and you, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, Bill Barr wrote a piece about this the other day. If you're incorporated in, as a regular company, not a benefit corporation, under Delaware law, which most of our companies are, you're required to pro- profit maximize. It's not an option. You can't trade off uh, environmental goals and, and social benefit and you know wage needs from your staff. You're required to profit maximize. Milton Friedman's at work. Jack Welsh is at work. That's an, you know,
2: I didn't see that piece by Bill Barr, but I didn't realize you were required under the incorporation statutes of the state,
0: but we all feel it. Right. He was published in one of those op-eds and he laid it out very clearly. And he's right under the law. He tends to be. Right. But now we've also gotten caught up in all this politics where now ESG, which is definitely an imperfect system, is called woke capitalism. Like looking after the environment and the communities that, that we work in and the Teams that that do the things in our companies, that that's woke to pay attention to that.
2: Yeah, that's absurd and and woke in the insulting form of the word, too, right.
0: Not the not the original one. Yes, exactly. not the way my kids use it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's right, and it's it's meant to be the epitaph that it is, right? And you know that's just a shame because we won't be able to keep the wonderful creative and innovative aspects of capitalism if we don't reform how we think about it. Alternative forms of government, which we've tried in the past, haven't worked out very well or just waiting. We see hints of them across the developed world.
1: I was going to ask a question, and I hope you take this in the spirit of the question. It's kind of, it's a non-rhetorical question. It's a genuine question. So you and others who have benefited from shareholder returns and have substantial wealth and, and are now criticizing because, like you mentioned, this is a journey. You kind of arrive at a life of advocacy and activism in the time that it takes, right? But I think that companies like Patagonia and individuals like yourself who have the means to affect a lot of change also have sort of a—it's a a double-edged sword in that some people may say, how can— you now expect upcoming generations to do the right thing when the system hasn't changed completely and you've already benefited from it. And so I wonder, are you all the right messengers and or who are the additional correct messengers of this?
0: Well, for sure, we're not all the right messengers. We and, and our parents and their parents are all complicit um, in this system, for sure. You know, I might tell myself that I was never involved in any extractive form of capitalism and worked, you know, building internet companies, but that's, that's a dodge. We're all complicit in the system, too, right? And so we're not the only important messengers. And I, I mean, I would argue that a 15-year-old now, I think 18-year-old Swedish woman had more impact as a messenger on these topics than, you know, any reformed capitalist and has caused a lot of people to stop and pay attention. And if you ask Yvonne, Melinda, his wife, you know, when they first started selling pitons, you know, out of the back of a truck so that they could climb for cheap with good equipment, they were not environmentally awake yet. And that's something that occurred over time as, you know, the, the places they love to go started to change. It's all, it has happened very quickly. I think what's remarkable about someone like Yvonne and the way he's run the company is it's never been run to maximize profit. It was run first to make great gear, right? And then to do the least harm and then to make an example of how you could do something differently. And then he threw all of that out and said, actually, the only reason we exist is to save the home planet. And anything that isn't contributing to that is a waste of our breath, right? And that's, you know, that he did that three or four years ago And we all said, I wonder exactly how that affects our day job. And then, you know, he did the ultimate thing, which is he transferred all the shares to this structure that you described at the beginning, Christina, which makes it clearer about what we do, you know, in our day jobs. So I think everyone has their own journey for how they pay attention to this stuff. But what's important is that we all pay attention to it.
4: Charles, I uh, would love to dig more into the Patagonia decision around the trust. Um, I know you were intimately involved. First, can you share the story about how you met Ivan?
0: Yeah, well, it's a funny sort of story. Is I, I, we had a common friend, um, I say had because he's now gone, but um, this crazy old draft dodger, hippie acid-dropping draft dodger, who lived up in British Columbia, who had bec- who was a, a logger turned commercial fisherman turned conservationist called Bruce Hill, just the most remarkable man. I was going to see Bruce, who I was funding when I worked at the Moore Foundation, and to go fishing with him. And he said, do you mind if I bring along a friend of mine? And you know, the friend of his was Yvonne. And um, we all climbed in a pickup truck the night before going fishing to drive up to this spot on the Skeena River up north. And it was pouring rain as it always does in British Columbia, and Yvonne pre- got out of the truck and was preparing to crawl under the truck to go to sleep. <laughs> oh, God. It was like It was like sheeting, sheeting mud streaming. We were parked on an incline. It was sheeting mud streaming. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, well, you gotta got go to go to sleep. And I said, well, look, I've got a tent. I'll, I'll set up a tent. And I set up a tent, and we, we shared a tent. And Bruce, uh, who was a heavy snorer, slept in the back of the pickup truck. <laughs> But you know that's that's how I met Ivan. Um, <laughs> sleeping um, in a tent with him. Sleeping in a tent with him. I love that. In a pouring, you know, in the pouring rain, and uh, up on the Skeena River in British Columbia. Obviously, I knew who he was and was already admired the work that he had done.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, were you a little awestruck at that point? Was how of course.
0: Of, <laughs> of course. Did <laughs> you sleep, like Yeah, I could I sleep. Be so I mean, giddy.
2: <laughs> yeah, there were
0: no. I know. Well, red wine helps with everything. So. Uh, no, I mean, of course I was awestruck.
2: You know, I, I have to ask you this, because when I when I read about what you guys did, I for one thing, I hadn't thought about a 501c4. I've written a lot about 501c3s, but when I read that, I was like, I had to go Google what a 501c4 was. I mean, that is a very intricate structure that you have set up. Got two questions. One is, wh- what was the eureka moment? Can you tell me when somebody slapped their forehead and said, Bing! Go. This is what we should do if it happened that way. And then I'm just curious about the backstory of how you guys worked out all the details. It sounds like it was complex.
0: Yeah, it was. And um, it's these things always look straightforward in retrospect, and it wasn't straightforward. I feel like it. You know, it took us two years. Well, first, Yvonne said, "Hey, you know, we need to do something different. Um, I'm getting older, and we need a permanent solution to Patagonia." And um, his kids, um, who, were, who were involved in the business, said, you know, we want to make these decisions while you're still alive and where you can make those decisions. We don't want you to kick that down a generation to us. And we want a permanent um, answer to, to the question, too. But what we knew is we had to solve for two things. Yvonne wanted to put much more resources against the fighting the environmental crisis. And we needed a solution for the next 50 years of Patagonia's stewardship. The company is in its 49th year, just about to be in its 50th year. And it turns out that's hard. You know, we we looked at um, Yvonne said do it, and I ignored him for six months. And then he <laughs> said, if you don't do it, I'm going to call Goldman Sachs. And of course, he didn't mean that. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> um, the last person to the call Goldman The ultimate threat, Sachs. But, right.
1: <laughs> but, Did he think that would work? <laughs>
0: But the funny thing is, we looked at going public using a direct listing with dual-class shares and only mm-hmm. selling a small proportion. We looked at selling part of the company to permanent capital style of, um, of private equity. You know, there are, there are B Corp private equity firms that claim to be permanent capital. We looked at partnering with big family offices that say they do the same thing. And we tested each one of those kinds of solutions against, you know, the very explicit criteria, but also the family's gut. And each time, you know, they felt like, ah, that's the first step down a path of starting to make compromises about who you are. And particularly public company approaches, you know, Yvonne never got comfortable that we wouldn't end up, you know, chasing shareholder capitalism. At 83, now 84, there was no way he was going to do that you know, as you know, a foundation can't own a company in the United States. C3 can't own a company. You have to start divesting within five years. And there's one little exception called the Newman's own exception, um, which is, which which we won't talk about. (laughs) This is a, this is a fashion show after all, but um, there's a, there's a super narrow exception to that and it, and it's not relevant in Europe um, and in Canada. Foundations can own companies and, C4s are interesting structures, imperfect structures. Uh, For one, there's no tax deduction when you give to a C4. Fortunately, this is a family that didn't care about the tax deduction and hadn't been taking big income to count against the tax deduction. Um, So they didn't care about that. And it was the combination of the C4 and the purpose trust, which is another unusual structure that it doesn't exist in every state. Um, That was the eureka moment. And I have to give credit where credit's due. We met this guy called Dan Mosley, who used to work at Cravath, the big Wall Street. So he's an attorney. A law firm. He's an attorney. Yeah. Okay. uh, In trusts um, and estates for 30 years. Just the most down-home, wonderful Alabama guy who who figured out this structure um, that no one had done before. And We'd been playing with C4s. One of my colleagues, Greg Curtis, who ran the project, had been playing with C4s, but we couldn't figure out how to get around some of the governance wrinkles of C4s.
2: The eureka moment, did he like squirrel away and figure this all out and then say, okay, let's have a board meeting
0: and present it to you? On We were you know, we kind of felt stuck. And I called an old friend of mine um, who had been an investor in one of my earlier businesses. And I said, hey, we're stuck. You know, we've got this set of problems. And he said, have you talked to Dan Mosley? And I said, no, who's Dan Mosley? And th- that was in some ways the luckiest call that I've made because we got to meet this wonderfully creative and thoughtful guy who really wanted to. He, it's rare people actually listen, right? He wanted, he understood what Yvonne and Melinda and the family wanted to do, and he figured out a legal approach to doing it that worked.
1: Do you know if he thought about it before or is it something that he had come up with for you?
0: I think he would thought about elements of it before, but never how they would fit together in this particular way. Because it's a rare thing for someone to say, hey, we want to give away our entire company. Most wealthy people, you know, say, uh, well, for example, they'll sign up for the billionaire's pledge. You know, we'll give away half. And what what Yvonne Yvon said was half? <laughs> that's, that's not enough. That's not enough. We're fine. You know, these are remarkable folks. They live in the same house they've lived in for decades. You know, they wear ratty old clothes. They drive secondhand cars. He doesn't even have a mobile phone. So these are folks who don't need, you know, yachts or airplanes. And they were happy giving it all away.
4: So Yvonne and the leadership team and the board have been um, wonderful about protecting Patagonia's values. And I'm sure it comes up every single day, every single hour in terms of business decisions that you could or could not make. Um, And can you share a little bit more about the other options um, you all ultimately rejected in terms of going public, being sold to an acquirer? What were some of the business decisions that you were worried about would be made in those types of situations that could now be protected.
0: Yeah. Well, the obvious ones are, you know, like, you know, there's only a limited number of levers you can pull in any business, right? You can you can cut costs, you can grow faster, you can increase your price, you can invest less or invest more, right? And when you have a, a private equity mentality, usually the levers you pull are grow faster, cut costs, increase your price. And th- those were pressures that Yvonne and his family wisely realized you can get dual class structure, you can protect yourself by voting rights. And but boy, once you once you drink that Kool-Aid or that, you know, take that pill, the the red pill or the blue pill, <laughs> then you're inevitably um living in that matrix. I've lived in that matrix, of course. I just have so much admiration for that courage to say no. You know, the folks who peddle those things, and we had, you know, everyone was coming with their SPAC. Remember? That was yeah. like 20, 2020. <laughs> everyone had a SPAC. And I won't even tell you all the names of the people who came to us with SPACs. <laughs> but, you know, famous athletes and, boy, it is heady stuff when you have a brand like Patagonia. Everybody wants to work with you. These people, they are they know what true north is,
2: mm-hmm. right? The family, you mean, yeah.
0: The family. They know what true north is.
2: It's remarkable that his children were on board for that. That was my, one of my first thoughts when I saw that news. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, they—they're really allergic to you know the, all the trappings that come along with attention and wealth and fame, and you know that's not what they wanted. They're the very same cloth that their parents are.
4: To whatever extent you can share, more about the mechanics of how the trust works. So there's a Patagonia Purpose Trust, and there's also the Holdfast Collective. Are any details you can share about exactly how that all works?
0: Sure. I mean, it's actually pretty straightforward. The voting shares are held by the Purpose Trust, and that is our shareholder that has a board. And Patagonia is still a for-profit company. Patagonia has a board. Those board members are the same board members they were before the decision, only we now serve at the pleasure of the Purpose Trust rather than the family. Who are the
2: deciders at the Purpose Trust?
0: The Purpose Trust has got a set of trustees, including family members, but also including including other people they trust. The cash flows of the business after the board of the business has made decisions about how much we need to reinvest in the business to make sure that it exists in perpetuity, those cash flows after and necessary investments go to the holdfast collective. And the holdfast collective makes decisions about how to invest in, you know, fighting climate change and biodiversity, and loss of biodiversity.
2: Will there be public reporting on what they're doing? Will we get to follow that?
0: Yeah, there, there, um, there's also a, a new um, foundation, a C3, called the Home Planet Fund, um, and we will report on the activities of all of those entities.
3: This episode is brought to you by SACS.com. At SACS.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
1: an experiment that's in, f- unfolding before your eyes as it is the public's and uh, knowing how Patagonia sort of operates and, and the transparency at which the company operates. I imagine the company's excited to sort of report how, how this unfolds. You mentioned something in your Fortune article where you said Chick-fil-A and Patagonia were named. Yeah as top uh, <laughs> companies based on product quality, trust, and ethics. They do make a good sandwich. Um, <laughs> but I, I love that comparison. And and then in Inc.'s article, it was mentioned that um, Yvonne had agonized a bit at whether this would work and what the future would be if it didn't and what that would look like for Patagonia. But we've also seen you know, people on the other side sort of launch similar models So if it's successful, what would that look like? What would the world look like where there are a lot of different models representing maybe forces that oppose your own ideas, having equally successful, you know, new governance structures?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really insightful question, Rachel. I think it's a a hard one. We wish that all companies would pick the purpose that we think is the most important one, but you can't legislate that. No one thinks of it as fascism when it's their idea, (laughs) but fascism, fascism is fascism.
2: That's a great Um, bumper sticker. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right. We should remember that, actually. We believe that companies should stand for something, and we should believe that they should be clear about their purpose, and we believe the world would be a better place. We don't think shareholders will be confused. You know, that Wall Street Journal, uh, for whom you work occasionally, thinks has published op-eds that said shareholders will be so confused. They're not dumb. They're super smart. They already look at hundreds of factors, including the personality of the CEO and the past record of the CFO. Investors are used to looking at companies and understanding what they're about, that companies should be clear about all elements of what they're about. Being a benefit corporation, you declare what that is. You have a public plan for what those goals are. We think that's a really good idea. We don't think we can impose on everybody what their purpose should be. And that's why I deliberately picked Chick-fil-A and I've never had their sandwich, but I hear it's good. They stand for something different from what Patagonia stands for and not something that I believe in. But I'm for them standing for something. And I don't don't think that's going to create a ridiculous anarchy. I think what it'll mean is companies will think about What they mean to stand for, and investors will invest in what they think will create long term value. I've got a feeling that the best way to create long term value is to treat the communities that you live in with respect, to treat your workers with respect, and to give them a fair share of the benefits created by a company, and to treat the environment as if we have to live in it forever because we do. So I've got a feeling that the values that we think are important will ultimately create longer term value for investors, too.
2: Well, I think it's paid off. You just came, A, you know, Yvonne became an accidental billionaire, apparently, from doing this pretty well. So that's unusual on its face. But you just were at the British Fashion Awards. They're, They're called the Fashion Awards now. They've taken the British out of it. But that is extremely unusual. You are an outdoor wear company. The Fashion Awards generally focus on Gucci, Balenciaga. It's luxury fashion, and they have recognized Patagonia and given you an award, which uh, is a little mind-bending for me to see it happening. I don't know what it was like for you to be there. I mean, tell us actually. And what did you wear?
0: <laughs> well, look, I um, of course, being Patagonia, we had to wear something that was already in our closet. Right, right,
2: right. So I had a
0: job in Oxford where I had to wear black tie. So I pulled out an old an old jacket um, from the closet. Look, it was a weird place to be. <laughs> Um, And we, obviously, we thought hard about whether it was the right place for us to be. Um, And I said to everybody up on the stage, this is not my normal habitat. Um, We are not a fashion company and we're pretty close to being an anti-fashion company. We think we should uh, buy clothes that have enduring value. But I also remembered the William Morris quote, which is, have nothing in your house you don't know to be useful and believe to be beautiful, that form and function Beauty and functionality can coexist, and in fact, probably must coexist. Because if your closet's going to have a small number of things that you really love and believe in, those should be things that you know where they came from, you know how they were made. And they should also give you pleasure and make you feel like you look good. It's okay, right? And so we made the decision, we'll go. We'll go, because the chance in that audience, I mean, you know, you guys set it in your own website. The apparel industry worldwide is about 10% of global emissions. If you can speak to folks who make fashion where they live, and that's where they live, then maybe we can move the dial a little bit. And when you listen to the young, you know, Camilla, uh, my wife and I sat there and we we listened to all the younger um, designers getting awards, all of them spoke about sustainability and sourcing and supply chains. It's happening, it's happening. And that's incredibly exciting to us. And so, yes, it's not our natural habitat. And also, yes, we sh- we should stand shoulder to shoulder with strange bedfellows and try and make it better. And, you know, my, f- my final line was, if Yvonne was here, he'd say good stuff. And he'd say, we can do better, right? And so, you know, let's all have a good time and then let's wake up tomorrow and do better. And um, th- that's a chance to influence... A big group of people and um, so we took the chance.
4: Charles, you've talked a lot about the tensions of living in a capitalist society um, and economy and the the pressures it produces Um, and I love how, you know, Patagonia has thought about its role within that society and structure and, and of course that famous don't buy this jacket campaign and there is a perpetual tension between growth as we've talked about and honestly, you know, some of the answer is probably going to be we have to probably consume less and produce less just across the board. And how do you think about that tension?
0: So first, I, Sheila, I think we have to acknowledge that we, we need to consume less and we, and we need to consume more soul goods. We need to consume things that don't hurt the planet. So, you know, time you spend with your family or friends or doing yoga or, you know, running through the forest glades, whatever turns you on that doesn't, isn't consumptive we need to spend more time in those things, spiritual things, and I don't mean in any religious sense. Patagonia, for a long time, had great suspicion about growth, and it was hard for me when I first started working with the company. You know, it's so built into you to think that, you know, growth is the indication that you're doing something good. Whenever we grew, you know, faster than kind of a modest amount, the family members would say, like, what? how did we do that? we say, what do you mean? I mean, we sold more stuff. Now, did we do it by filling wholesale channels full of stuff? Or did we do it by demand pull? People who really needed that jacket choosing us over another brand. How do you identify that? It's hard. I mean, you know, you can you can look at um, brand share gains, and that's one of the things we always look at. We are fiercely competitive. We want to make a better jacket than the North Face. I mean, let's be honest. But what we don't want is you to buy three jacket, one jackets, one in powder blue, one in pink, and one in whatever. I mean, that's that's destructive. All of us, including Patagonia, need to choose less growth, and we need to ask our customers to pick wisely. I think that'll have to be the future if we want a planet that's worth living on.
1: This announcement spread, you know, far and wide, and, and I had conversations with people who I normally probably wouldn't have spoken to about these things um, outside of professional settings because of Patagonia's announcement. And the widespread feedback I got was, oh, I'm going to buy Patagonia now. I am going to buy Patagonia for my children. I'm all in on Patagonia. So have you had sales increases? Oh, just quickly. I also heard, I will now
4: want to work at Patagonia. Yes.
0: Well, we obviously didn't make this decision uh, to give everything away. Right. Uh, the Chenards didn't make that decision in order to sell more stuff. But, you know, Yvonne Yvon, Yvon has always said, doing the right thing is good for business. It's not always good for business in the short term, but it's always good for business in the long term. And he also says, in his grumpy way, you can't do any business on a dead planet. And so... We hope that people will buy their jacket from Patagonia instead of somebody else. But we don't want you to buy two of them if you don't need them. So we'd we'd love it if you bought ours because we know where ours comes from. And, you know, ESG has come under appropriate criticism and also inappropriate criticism because it's very hard to give an index for a giant company. You know, how are you doing? We'll give you three numbers. Well, that's ridiculous. We work at that at the product level. So we can tell you whether a black hole is better or worse than a fleece jacket. And we know exactly how much water that uses, how much carbon um, it's involved in emitting. We know whether the chemistries that are involved in creating the product are dangerous. We know if the fibers were regenerative, organic, or beyond organic.
2: Is that true all the way through Scope 3?
0: Everything. Okay. So you've done it. So we've done it. We've just done it, and I'll, I'll be honest also, which is we've done it three times over the last 15 years, each time getting better, each time going deeper. Now we can do it at the product level because of the incredible technical team that works for Patagonia. It costs more. Not only does it cost more to do that better, but it costs more to know that. Sometimes it costs more to buy something that's done right. And we think that's okay, especially if you can own it for a long time. Most of us still have Patagonia stuff we bought 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I do right? You don't have to throw that stuff away. And, you know, partly because we don't chase fashion or trends, you know, wonderful black raincoats likely to be pretty damn good looking 10 years from now too, right? It's unlikely to have a colorway or a pattern or a texture that doesn't work in the future. And that's deliberate.
2: You know, that's actually, if you had a group of young fashion label founders in front of you, Every one of them wanting to build a successful company. What specifically would you advise them to do to get to where you are? So they're starting out. The fashion industry is full of people starting brands in their living rooms.
0: There's so many great ones, and I and I think so many of these these folks. Um, and it's Rachel. It speaks to your challenge earlier, which is that generation is so much more dialed in. I think that they're already thinking this way, and I'm seeing less sort of fashion frippery. And I, you know, boy, don't listen to me on this stuff. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I'm seeing people focus on what I'll call style. Um, which I think is a much more enduring thing than fashion, which almost by nature feels like it's ephemeral. What can't we build stuff in our closet that we feel really good about and we feel we look good in Can't we find William Morris's sweet spot where we have great foundational stuff that we put together in new ways with new splashes of color? And yeah, I mean, we do, you know, you wear stuff wears out. So you do get to buy some new stuff, but hopefully we can do that in a way that, you know, actually works, but we shouldn't, you know, I guess we're not supposed to name names, but you know, there are, there are fast fashion retailers on the high street or on the main street, you know, where they're doing 55 drops a year. Right? They're chasing a particular demographic that doesn't have a lot of money, and they're selling them stuff that costs 20 bucks or less and is worn less. You know, you, you know the stats. You guys quote the stats. Nowadays, people buy 40 garments a year. They're worn less than seven times. Are you kidding me? And that can't be the future, right? And all that stuff ends up in landfills or it ends up being shipped to other people's countries where we oppress them with our crap. Do we feel good about that? I hope we don't
2: it's also mind bending that none of us feel good about it and yet it's it's still happening
4: right understood. this
0: minute it's a system
4: your ceo ryan gellert said in an article recently i think what the Schoonards have committed to doing is one of the biggest moments in the history of capitalism and and i definitely agree if you have the ability to peer into the future or to share about um, what the future might look like are there other innovations either in model or product that is on the minds of the folks at Patagonia? Is it leaning into some of the other models like resale and repair, which I know you are already doing? Any um, any hints about what the future may hold that you're able to share?
0: Well, sure. I mean, you know, and I, I can't see the future any clearer than you guys. You guys are in the see the future business, right? All, all of you uh, individually and collectively. Obviously, we need a circular and regenerative, um, economy and everything that we do in the food that we eat and, and, and the apparel that we wear and, and in every other way, our future is going to be based there. And so how we design, um, our garments, um, they have to be designed to be taken apart. And there was a whole period where we found some really cool technologies that were weld together different types of fabrics. And those are cool technologies, you know, no seams and but a lot of that stuff was very hard to take apart at the end, right? And there's there's stuff that fails on everything. You guys know what it is. It's zippers, right? And we need to be able to construct our jackets so that they can be taken apart and recycled. First, so that they can be repaired. So you can take that zipper out cheaply, right? And then put in a new zipper. And then when you're really at the end of a garment's life, can we patch it up some and sell it to somebody else? Or when it's really, really at the end of its life... How can we be sure that every element of that can be recycled into a new garment? That has to be our future. I do think we're also moving toward fabrics and approaches that will be genuinely more multi-use, right? So, you know, today, well, so like, you know, today, high mountain Alpine is an incredibly dangerous environment to be in, and it's probably different from, you know, an L.A. rainstorm. But... Is there a way that we could design garments that could actually serve both of those purposes and so we we can have fewer items? And we are constantly looking for ways to cut items. And so some of our competitors, if you go onto their websites, it's actually bewildering. They'll have 700 different jackets. We don't want 700 different jackets. We're constantly focused on reducing skew count. And that feels terrible, right? Because, you know, some of these SKUs are your friends, right? <laughs> you know, like, wow, were we really dropping that kind of cinchilla? Yeah, we have to. We have to.
2: There's actually a whole movement in sociology, the paradox of choice. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? The, I am,
0: the, no,
2: 100%. I think that may be why you've created an accidental billionaire is because that actually is easier for consumers to make decisions when they have less, fewer choices, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and I, I'm sure there's no one more happy than him to say he's no longer
2: yes. uh, an accidental <laughs> Sorry. We Sorry. That's a, that's a <laughs> slur to him, Christina. <laughs> Sorry, I keep saying that.
0: Well, the, the, I remember <laughs> the first time that he was listed on one of those lists. And he said to me, Charles, I've never known a billionaire that wasn't an a-.
2: Uh-oh. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, and Shola, thank you so much, Charles. Thank you for saying yes, him that <laughs> that until he
0: came on. Very generous of you. Yeah. Well, it was super fun. I love talking about this stuff, and you know, I I hope that um, that we all work and you know create that future world that we want to live in.
2: Thanks so thank much. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Good to see you. Really enjoyed it.
2: So that was crazy. Um, he seems to be speaking wisdom that is, would be an anathema on Wall Street. Um, it seems like all the decisions they make and how they run their company is exactly the opposite of what they teach in business school, and yet it's Patagonia. We know what that brand is, right? It's
4: incredible. I mean, I, I hope clearly everything they do is to serve as a model for others, yeah. and I feel like them making these moves is significant. And I hope, and it sounds like Charles is hopeful, that others will follow their path I'm not so sure whether others will, but it's a great model.
2: It is a great model.
4: To show that there's another way.
1: I also think that it's it's a model to serve by example to others, but it's also a model that they're leveraging their guts. He mentioned how how much noise there is around a brand as popular as Patagonia and how much influence that they have to uh, reflect on from celebrities, from Wall Street itself, and then Go internally inside the family and listen to their guts and have their north star and commit to it, and I think there's something to be said about that. Yeah, and you know, there's two kind of two models. Maybe everybody
2: isn't going to follow the give away your company model, but how about the other part of their model, which is make really good stuff that people want and stop mm-hmm. having your north star be 12% growth every quarter that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at hotbuttonspod and now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our call in line. It's 508-622-5361. Give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by PostScript Media. Our senior editor is Ann Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Mesa martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibby are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week.
0: You saw the the label on the inside of our shorts, which said "Vote the Yeah, wasn't, it wasn't specific we, we all about which.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I posted that on Instagram. <laughs> Applies universally. Yeah. <laughs>